Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den store amerikanske videnskabshistoriker Lorraine Dashton. For nogle år siden befandt Dashton sig på en strand i Tyskland. Hun er tysk gift og tilknyttet Max Planck-instituttet i Berlin, så hun befinder sig ofte i Tyskland og er relativt fortrolig med de tyske koder. Men det, der slog hende på stranden, det var, at den var opdelt i nogle meget sierligt markerede områder, og at alle respekterede de grænser, der var mellem områderne. I det ene område, der var der folk, der var i badetøj. I et andet område, der var der folk, der badede nøgne. I et tredje område, der var der folk med badetøj, som havde hunden med. I det fjerde område, der var der folk, der havde børn med. I det femte område, der var der folk, som ønskede at dyrke sport. Og i det sjette område, der lå nogen, som bare ville have fred og ro. Og det, der slog hende, det var, hvordan man kunne lave regler for frie mennesker, som de alle sammen respekterede. At man kunne inddele verden i nogle små felter, og folk bevægede sig inden for de felter, som om det var det naturligste i verden. En del af det er selvfølgelig, at sådan er det altid, når man er udlænding. Man synes altid, at reglerne er underlige i andre lande og helt naturlige i ens eget land. Men en anden del af det er også, at hele vores kultur er fuldstændigt mættet med forskellige regler og inddelinger, som det er helt ufatteligt, at vi faktisk kan holde ud at leve med. Det fik Lorraine Dashton til at overveje reglernes forandring gennem vores kulturhistorie. Hvad for nogle regler, der er blevet overholdt, og hvad for nogle regler, der ikke er. Hvad man har kunne regulere sig ud af, og hvad man ikke har kunne regulere sig ud af. Det brugte hun nogle år på at studere, og i 2022 der udgav hun den fantastiske bog, som er en hel civilisationshistorie. Den hedder Rules, A Short History of What We Live By. Hvor hun hele vejen fra antikken og frem til i dag fortæller om, hvordan reglerne har ændret sig, vores forhold til regler har ændret sig, og hvordan det er blevet ved med at være en dobbelthed med, at vi kan ikke holde ud at leve med regler, vi kan heller ikke leve uden regler. Der er fantastiske opdagelser i hendes bog. For eksempel var der 500 år, hvor man bekæmpede luksus, alt det man kunne, og blev ved med i Vesteuropa at lave regler imod luksus. Og hver gang man lavede regler imod luksus, så blev de læst omvendt, som om, når det er det, man skal gøre for at være smart her. Så kom en fransk revolution og sagde, at du kan have alt det luksus, du vil. Så holdt man op med at lave regler mod luksus og se, hvor det har bragt os hen i dag. I den samtale, der følger, taler vi selvfølgelig om, hvad en regel er, hvordan vores forhold til regler har forandret sig, men også om, hvordan man kan regulere vores adfærd i dag, hvis man nu for eksempel synes, at vores tilbøjelighed til luksus har en skadelig effekt på vores naturgrundlag. Her følger min samtale med Lorraine Dashton. Well, um, to tell you the truth, Uh, I never thought of rules as anything but short normative sentences telling us what to do or what not to do. I never thought very much about, about it. But then I read your book and I was very, very impressed by the ambitions and the scope and the originality of the entire enterprise. How, how did you come up with the, the idea of writing a, a, such an enormous book like this? Well, I think it's relevant your question as to whether I'm in Germany or not. <laughs> uh, I think that... The book first germinated on a Baltic beach um, on the German shore. The beach is a beautiful beach. It's divided into um, separate addresses 
So strips along the beach, which are not marked in any way except by a sign. And each of these addresses has a different rule. There is a part of the beach, which is for people wearing bathing suits. There is a part of the beach for people wearing no bathing suits. There is a part of the beach for people with dogs. There is a part of the beach for people with children. There is a part of the beach for people who wish to practice sports. There is a part of the beach which is for people who wish to just lie undisturbed and on and on and on. And I was uh, astonished not only by the degree to which these rules had been thought out to avoid conflict on the beach, but also the degree to which they were followed um, despite every possible temptation to uh, break, break the rules. And I think that was the beginning of this book. Do you think, because we say here in Denmark, we have a saying that every time we go to Sweden, we, re- we realize how many rules they have because they're different than our rules. But every time Swedes go to Denmark, they realize how many rules we have. Do you think it, it your experience has had something to do with the specific place you were or being a foreigner? I think both. I think um, very much being a foreigner, um, every time I mention a rule which I find particularly absurd or superfluous in Germany, my husband, who is German, counters with a rule he finds um, equally um, silly and superfluous in the United States. (laughs) So yes, and I think this is an effect which is as old as Herodotus. Um, When Herodotus visits Egypt, He says everything there is upside down, by which he means upside down relative to Greek standards. He says, um, you know, the the women go to market, the men stay home and weave, the um, women urinate standing up, the men sit down. And I think it's the first time that Herodotus realizes that what seems absolutely self-evident to Greeks is not self-evident everywhere. So I think this is what happens to every traveler since time immemorial. In the in the beginning of the book, there's a sentence where you say, we moderns cannot live without rules, but we also cannot live with them, at least not comfortably. And when I read that, I was thinking, is this just another way of rephrasing what Freud called das Unbehagen in der Kultur? Is this just a human that we need rules, but but we don't like them as well? Or is there something specific our of our understanding of rules that makes it more difficult for us Is it because we have too narrow an understanding of rules? I think it's both. I mean, I do think that there is something um, to Freud's insight about the childishness in all of us, which hates to see its will thwarted by anything, especially by external rules. But I also think it there is a specific unbehagen, a specific uneasiness about the kinds of rules which regulate our lives in the extremely, by historical standards, um, orderly polities of what is called the global north or the or the west. Namely, that these rules are increasingly without any kind of latitude or elasticity. They anticipate a world which is uniform, without surprises, and in which conformity can be enforced to the letter. They are literal-minded, what I call in the book, thin rules. Um, Those are rules which are particularly likely to be abrasive, if only because real life is, in fact, 
variable, even in these well-ordered polities. It is always going to be the case that rules will come up against unanticipated circumstances um, for which in previous times there were arrangements for the rules to be bent or in some way um, twisted or stretched to cover those cases without breaking the rules, um, especially in a world in which we are increasingly following rules online and living our lives online and are therefore subject to algorithms, um, that possibility has been foreclosed for us. As anyone who has filled out an online form knows, um, the algorithm does not understand your special case. Um, whether it is that you have a zip code, a postal code, which is not in its directory, or more, more tragically, you have an identity which cannot be parsed easily into male or female. The, the scope of, of your book is enormous, and we have cookbooks, and we have sumptuary laws, and, and we have monastery rules. How, how did you decide on, on, on this? The entire it, it reads almost like a history of, of Western civilization. How did you decide on, on this level of, of ambitions? I, I have a fatal attraction for topics that are the tail end of all human knowledge. I don't start out that way. I really do try to start out with a well-circumscribed topic, but somehow it always overflows the boundaries of what I'd imagined. And I think my publisher must have despaired that this book was ever going to be finished because of as you say, the, the kingdom of rules is boundless. And moreover, it's fascinating. Um, I, I would happily have gone on reading rule books um, for the rest of my life um, had I not had a deadline. There's a, you, may, you also write in the book that there's a rough arc in, in the book. There is a chronology. There's a certain kind of rules that were strong earlier, what you call models or, or paradigms. <laughs> And then, and then algorithms become stronger and stronger, representative in in the in the kingdom of of, of rules. So there is a travel towards modernity in it. But you also emphasize that this, this is not just about modernity. It's not the that that the the world of thin rules is not just about what period we're in, but also about domains and and fields. Could you describe this tension between the overall chronology of the book and then between different fields. Yes, you're a very perceptive reader. You have caught um, a certain inconsistency in the structure of the book, which is a remnant of how I began the book. I, I began the book with a very clear narrative arc in mind, which would take me in the fashion of almost all historians from pre-modernity to modernity. And then I took so long to write this book that I was ambushed by the pandemic. And all of the circumstances which I had attributed rather thoughtlessly in retrospect to a pre-modern period, I realized could erupt at any moment in the modern period. And I then began to rethink my chronology in much more in terms of a kind of conceptual geography of there being archipelagos of order in the world, and they could happen at any time in the world's history, at any place in the world. It takes um, political rule, a certain amount of um, technology, and a certain degree of societal organization. But at any moment, one of these islands of order could form itself. However, these islands of order 
are always precarious as we discovered in the pandemic when suddenly the well-ordered world of trains and planes that ran almost always um, predictably or being able to have a calendar which we planned six months, even a year in advance, began to seem ludicrous to us. We could barely plan three days in advance. So I began to rethink this narrative arc, but there is a development, at least in the societies about which I can write, and I should emphasize that I am only writing about societies in which I have access to the primary sources, I command the languages, and I um, would welcome counterexamples from other cultures and other periods. But at least in those societies, there is an evolution from a trio of rules, uh, rules understood as laws, rules understood as what we would call algorithms, um, that is, rules having to do with calculation and measurement, and rules understood as models. And rules understood as models is not only present, but predominant until about 1800. And then it all but disappears from the definitions of rule. And as you say, algorithms, rules as algorithms, um, not necessarily numerical algorithms, also bureaucratic rules begin in the ascendant. And so a lot of the book is about the world we have lost, which is the world in which rules meant models. And, and, and I must admit, I never thought of models as rules. I, and after having read your book, I see them all, I see them around me. So, so I think we still have models functioning as rules, but we don't use them conceptually like the we don't think of them as as rules but but what's the brief explanation of rules as models rules as models are rules that you learn to follow by having a model before you perhaps the easiest way to think about this is how a child learns uh, a child has the model of its parents but also of other children its teachers and the child does not precisely imitate, it does not ape all of the mannerisms of the parents or the teacher or the other children, but it understands roughly um, a certain regularity of behavior in a certain place under certain circumstances. And anyone who has had a small child knows that children are extremely sensitive to how rules change in different places. There are different rules, for example, in school than there are at home and different rules at your house compared to the home of your, of your friends. So children are, are extremely adept at navigating this, this territory. And those are the kinds of rules which are, as I say, the predominant kind of understanding of what rules are from antiquity, Greek and Roman antiquity, right through the beginning of the 19th century. One of the examples that I give in the book is of a Benedictine monastery. Um, the, the order of the Benedictines, the rule of St. Benedict, is very old. It dates from the sixth century of the Common Era, but it is still the order of um, Benedictine monasteries all over the world, whether they are in southern Italy or in the Philippines or someplace in Latin America. And one reason for the longevity of the rule of St. Benedict is that it is really based um, on on the model of the abbot, who is always able to make an exception or to tweak or to bend the rule as circumstances demand. So 
there are 73 precepts in the rule of St. Benedict that seem to order everything, every aspect of the life in the monastery in minute detail, what the monks can eat, when they go to bed, when they get up, um, what they wear, how many pillows and blankets they have, everything, every detail is regulated. And yet after the enunciation of every precept, for example, that the monks get a, um, a pound of bread a day and one cup of wine, there is, but in the case of special circumstances, the abbot may make an exception. He may allow what is otherwise forbidden, um, a monk who is sick to eat the flesh of four-footed animals. He may allow a monk who is otherwise um, enjoined to silence um, to converse out of politeness to a guest to the monastery, and on and on and on it goes. And that's an example of the rule as model. You know, some modern culture critics would say, well, this is just another word of a tyrannical rule, that he's the he's the sovereign who rules in the state of exception. And he decides when is the when is the state of exception declared that he did that he, it's in his he's the sole ruler. So so how, how could this be? How could this be a model? But you're very precise that this is not what is at, at stake here. This is not just tyrannical. This rules as a model. No, it is not. It is not tyrannical. And it is always the case that the circumstances must justify the exception. Um, it would be tyrannical if it were at the whim or arbitrary caprice of the abbot. That indeed would be despotical. But that is not the case with the rule of St. Benedict. Um, the abbot makes exceptions under special circumstances which are clear to all. Um, it is rarely, if ever, the case that his reasons are obscure. So, so what the, the, the models they offer is a way of mediating between the universal and the particular, or between some kind of strict rationality and, and common sense perception of the world. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I think what we mean when we say common sense, it's an abbreviation for flexibility in the face of changed circumstances. So that, um, again, take the case of a computer algorithm. Um, as I say, we have all had unpleasant experience, and not only with computer algorithms, with bureaucratic rules, which are clearly not designed for the case at hand, and that to follow them in the case at hand um, would lead to an unjust or a ridiculous conclusion. Um, common sense dictates that we override the letter of the rule and we honor its spirit. And that is exactly what is going on um, with the rule as model. So, so how did the rule as model disappear out of our world? This was so dominant. It has such a long, long history. And, and then all of a sudden, it seemed to, not all of a sudden, but gradually, then suddenly, it seemed to have disappeared. Right. I think what you said a moment ago is um, very apt here, which is, once you're sensitized to the rule as model, you see it everywhere. So it really hasn't disappeared. But it has gone underground. That is, we have lost the conceptual category of the rule as model, and that's what has to be explained. And I think there's an insight also in your rejoinder to my description of the abbot, which is, isn't that a tyrant? Which is, um, especially in democratic polities, there is a growing distrust of authority of all kinds 
that exercise discretion, whether the authority in question is a judge in the courtroom, um, a politician, a bureaucrat, a teacher even in the classroom, um, there is increasing distrust that to treat people in different ways, even if the circumstances seem to require it, is to be unfair. So what you have is a, a definition of political equality, which demands not only equal treatment under the law, but identical same treatment under the law. And that I think has been fatal for the rule as model, which absolutely requires that you exercise judgment and discretion. You know, some people would say, and I know you're a historian, but I jumped to a current example here just for pedagogical reasons, that 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 we're actually in a place now where people are much more open to uh, people like Donald Trump or Le Pen or some someone who are not rule based, and and that 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 this expectation of of rationality and rigid rules and of or the validity and strength of thin rules is is already disappearing. Would you say there's a connection between? our lack of understanding of the potential of rules as models, and then what we're seeing today. That's a very interesting idea. And, and I think to some extent, although I would argue that someone like Donald Trump, who absolutely thrives on breaking rules, would not exist where they're not rules. That is, this is a duet that he is mm. performing with the rules. Without the rules to break, he has no way of being outrageous. And what his followers delight in is his outrageousness. Um, so I, I think that one has to realize that he's completely parasitic upon the rules. Then there's another distinction that is very important in your book between thin rules and thick rules. And first I was thinking, well, in the pre-modern times, you had uh, thick rules, and now we have thin rules, and maybe the thin rules are supported by thick rules, but we just don't see them as as uh, thick rules. But I'm not quite sure that's a, a correct reading of your book. How, how should we distinguish between the two? I think the first way to distinguish between the two of them is that they're meant for different kinds of worlds. Thick rules are meant for worlds in which there's a high degree of unpredictability, instability, and variability. And therefore, they're enunciated with examples, they anticipate exceptions, they're meant, the enunciation of the rule is meant to give you a sense of the range of variability of the particulars that you will have to anticipate in order to apply the rule correctly. Um, so they're, I call them thick because it's as if um, they're cocooned in layers and layers and layers of um, anticipations of where the rule is not going to apply precisely. Thin rules, in contrast, are made for a world which is stable, predictable, and uniform. They presume an enormous amount of standardization and also the coordination of behavior. So especially in um, dense clusterings of people, so large cities, and we begin to see the emergence of thin rules with the emergence of metropolises, which are larger than 500,000 people in the early modern period in Europe, um, then um, you begin to have rules which depend upon a certain kind of order and therefore no longer anticipate any kinds of irregularities, unforeseen circumstances, variability to which they will have to adjust. 
and then there's a very interesting sentence. I've written it down to remember it correctly, uh, which is that uh, that behind every thin rule is a thick rule cleaning up after it. Could you explain this? It's almost a dialectic between the two. Yes, I, I mean, what I had in mind concretely in writing that sentence was um, the plight of Facebook and other online social media platform mediators who are constantly having to um, um, clean up after the chaos wrought by the algorithms, um, either in allowing content which is forbidden um, by law or good sense or morals, or um, which is um, reinforcing misinformation or other violations of the code of the social platform. Um, and this is something which has to be done more or less in secret um, by people exercising judgment and discretion because the thin rules, the algorithms, cannot do what they are supposed to do. I was struck by the word every. Is this to say that all thin rules are also supported by Morris or what you call Sittlichkeit in, in Germany? Yes, no, I, I would defend that every. I think that um, there are rules, you can make rules, um, but not all rules will have traction. And um, rules that don't have traction in some kind of normative support or at least habit are rules, I give the example of sumptuary laws in the books, which yeah. are doomed to failure. Yeah, these, these are just wonderful. This is such an interesting history of, of, of sumptuary laws, really. Uh, that it's, you write that it's 500 years of, of, uh, of, of repeated failure. How, how did they arise originally? So these, the sumptuary rules, for, for those who may not have heard of them before, are rules against excess expenditure. Um, they're meant to curb luxury, but also conspicuous display of status. They're very ancient and they're very widespread. In um, the ancient Mediterranean world, they're usually applied not to dress, but to funerary practices. So uh, it was customary to have paid mourners. And this attempted to set a limit to the number of paid mourners you could have, how extreme their expressions of grief could be. They could not rend their garments um, and tear out their hair. In the Middle Ages and early modern period in Europe, they were mostly addressed to people's clothing and especially to the latest fashion, the latest frivolous, luxurious, lavish fashion, whether it was um, long pointy shoes or um, ermine trim or tall pointy caps. Um, there are all kinds of um, kinds of targets of these regulations. And they were they were extremely common and they were enforced. So in Venice, for example, Venice, medieval Venice, um, allowed slaves, who informed upon their mistresses usually, who were wearing, for example, wide satin sleeves they should not have been wearing, um, by, by, by giving the, free, the slave um, freedom. So um, there was a high incentive in many other cities, um, someone who informed on someone violating the sumptuary regulations um, got a, a split of the fine that was levied. So there were, there were strong incentives and they were enforced, but they had absolutely no effect whatsoever in curbing people's taste for extravagant fashion. Actually, you make the point that they sometimes had the perverse effect of almost making this more attractive. 
that when 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 excessive luxury was forbidden by regulation, then it almost seemed either codified as top of the social hierarchy or becoming more attractive. Yes, there's a case. I, I almost I can hardly believe that they the officials were in earnest about this in Strasbourg. Um, um, this is I think um, late 17th century Strasbourg. They have um, a code of 256 social categories which could be used as a kind of guide to a social climber, which is if you want to climb the social ladder, this is how you should dress to um, be promoted to the next higher level. But it's even worse. Um, once you forbid something, let's say you forbid pointy shoes, then the cobblers and their customers have an incentive to invent an even more ridiculous and extravagant fashion. For example, high-heeled shoes with rosettes or buckles um, so that unintentionally the, the um, officials who are making the social regulations are driving fashion faster and faster and faster. And, and I please excuse me for making a, maybe a somewhat vulgar reading or journalistic reading of something that has historical complexity, but I couldn't help thinking that this was a moment where you was where where the authorities were battling the instincts that would later be the foundations of capitalism. That this Absolutely. is a, a, yes. and, and and then there's this extreme moment for me, very surprising moment. So, well, then you have the French Revolution, and the French Revolution, it's codified. You can wear whatever you want. So I'm I had this picture in my head that you have 500 years, you're struggling against these desires for luxury. For, for consumption, for social hierarchy out of, of vanity, and then they lose, and now we build a society on exactly that. Is that a very vulgar reading? No, I, I, I think it's mostly on the money, um, so to speak. Um, and, and it's actually the perception of 17th and 18th century observers. So there are lots of treatises on luxury in the 17th, 18th century, which say, look, we should stop worrying about excess expenditure on luxury, this is what's driving the economy. Um, and one of the most famous summaries of this is called Private Vices, Public Virtues by Bernard Mandeville's The Fable of the Bees, in which he says, yes, it may be a vice to um, spend large amounts of money on such frivolities, but publicly it employs people, it grows the economy, it makes us all more prosperous. So if we look to today, and, and what are I'm not asking you to give political advice for the left today. How should we uh, how should we combat the excessive luxury? But what are the lessons to be learned? What what are they tried for 500 years? Something I have great sympathy for their causes, even though I know some of them are very authoritarian. But what are the lessons to be learned from that? Right. So I think um, you know we would now think about forbidding excess consumption not because we are against luxury per se, or because um, we are worried about enforcing a certain social order, but because we are worried about saving the planet. Um, we are worried about sustainability. Um, and I, I, I think there's already a movement. It's not um, a legal movement, though it could become one, um, at least amongst my students. There is a vogue for vintage clothing, which means clothing that has been recycled from some other use rather than buying new clothing. And it's very much in the name of sustainability. So I don't think it would be very successful, frankly, um, to legislate this. But I think 
one could make fashion work for one, which is to um, set, make it modish, um, once again in vogue, um, to wear old clothing over and over again, um, and also to um, buy only clothing which can be worn for many, many years. I could easily imagine a fashion which took up this look. And that strikes me, um, not legislation, but a fashion, strikes me as the most effective way to encourage different habits, consumption habits. So instead of being against this machine or this social, this machine of social hierarchy and desires, use it to the purpose that you want right. to achieve. Make fashion work for you. <laughs> that, 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 but you, when, when, if we look at a, a more recent example of, of really regulating people's behavior, and I think overall somewhat successfully, it's smoking. When I was young, when I was young, my parents were very, very kind people. But then my father would always be smoking cigar in the car. And, and and for my kids, that's totally unacceptable. And they're very, very, very liberal people. That's, no, it's not unsafe. It's unthinkable. They cannot understand that they're very, very kind granddaddy. He would do that. What, was that because you had a, 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 a cultural understanding first? And then when you had the cultural understanding that smoking was damaging, then you made the rules rather late. So there was a moral foundation or a and ethical in the Hegelian sense of the word foundation that you could make the rules later on. You know, that's a really interesting case. And I think it's probably, um, it probably unfolded slightly differently in different countries, but I had the opportunity to observe it um, in the United States and in Germany and um, with a time lag. And the key step in making this possible, I think, was the discovery of um, secondary smoke damage. So as long as um, smoking was known to be dangerous for your health, but dangerous only to the smoker's health, I think it was very difficult to enforce legislation. The moment it became dangerous, in your example, for the children in the car, then it completely changed. Then it became a matter of inflicting risk, unwanted risk upon other people. And that's what made it possible first in the United States and then in other countries um, to push through legislation, anti-smoking legislation. And what is very interesting in Germany, because I watched this happen twice, the first reaction was denial about the phenomenon of secondary smoke damage secondary smoking damage. Um, I can remember many, many conversations with my colleagues where I worked who simply refused to believe this. Um, and then gradually when the evidence became undeniable, um, they they grudgingly accepted the rules. I don't think many of them actually stopped smoking, but they did accept the rules as normative. Yeah, that's so do you think it would be possible to extend this and say, well, cars in the city is like, is the same effect on a larger scale that because I, I, I sometimes think that if we can make give people the same feeling about seeing large cars driving around the city as you have when you see, for instance, if you saw a pregnant mother with a cigarette, people today almost I feel physically uh, pain from, from seeing that. Do you think that 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 is possible to extend this understanding and then turn that into a, a kind of regulation? I, I think I absolutely think I can. I think that. Um, on the analogy of the smoking example, what's required is a certain amount of consciousness raising um, about 
the damage done to people who are completely um, innocent bystanders in this. They themselves may never drive a car, and yet they are subject to, um, to the damage. Of course, the other precondition is um, it's not the case, of course, in Denmark, which has an excellent public transportation system, um, but it is the case in a place like the United States, is that there has to be an alternative. For a very long time, it's been known that cars are um, stinky, polluting, murderous. You know, they kill thousands of people, tens of thousands of people every year. But that has been insufficient to um, regulate them um, because there is no viable alternative to using them. And I think that um, that's the precondition for effective legislation. Another very interesting part of your book deals with the the relation between the on you would all call it ontological order or the material order and and the rules order. And, and you and you say that 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 um, that islands of stability and predictability, their political achievement, they depend on technological infrastructure. And and I, I was thinking how much. Do they do these islands of stability and predictability? How much do they depend on our understanding of nature as something that we can as something that we can predict? In other words, when I was a kid growing up in Denmark in the 70s, we considered nature absolutely predictable and absolutely stable. And we couldn't imagine that we would live in a world where nature would become threatening to us. So so this whole issue of climate change, do you think that will change the way we construct our rules, that we will think of uh, rules differently because the world seems less predictable? I know this is a very difficult question. No, there's an extremely interesting one. I think that there's a reason why uh, so many cultures try to buttress their moral orders by appeals to nature. And one reason for that is the regularities of nature. Um, just as every moral order depends upon a certain level of predictability, so that, for example, if I make a promise to you, you can depend on me to keep it. Um, and there are many other implicit forms of social predictability that our moral order depends on. Um, the strongest forms of regularity that we know are natural regularities, most obviously, the movements of the heavenly bodies. And for that reason, since very ancient times, the movements of the heavenly bodies have been used as both a metaphor, an analogy, and a justification for rules and laws in human societies. And for that reason, when there are natural disasters, irregularities in nature, these two have been highly moralized. Um, you can see this in, for example, um, the way in which the phrase the revenge of nature has been used to describe, for example, disasters like the earthquake and tsunami um, that engulfed Japan in, I think, 2011. We abbreviate this entire disaster, which killed over 15,000 people, with the word Fukushima, even though almost all of the deaths were caused by the tsunami, not by a nuclear reactor meltdown. But we do this because we point a finger of blame at the one area where humans might have been held responsible and speak of nature's revenge. So yes, I think that um, 
um, our highly moralized discourse of nature is going to take on a very different character as nature becomes more and more savagely unpredictable with climate change. There's also a, a word that's important in your book, though not mentioned very often, is arbitrary. It seems that that rules are always related to something that's arbitrary, which is interesting because the root of arbitrary is almost free will. Uh, but there's, uh, I think that that maybe climate change and the world that we're living in now can teach us to to live uh, with more tolerance of of what's arbitrary or what earlier would be called tragic. Do you see a teaching moment in this? Hmm. That's, uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, arbitrary, of course, the word itself means an exercise of will, um, arbiter, liber um, arbiter, but and it referred, I think, originally to a divine act of will. So an intervention in the natural order, which might seem um, miraculous to us, but was uh, part of some higher divine divine providence. I, I find it difficult, frankly, to believe that people will accustom themselves to a life which is entirely unpredictable, particularly when it becomes unpredictable in such a dangerous way. Um, Volcanic eruptions and earthquakes are perhaps the most dramatic examples, but also ever more ferocious storms and ever more frequent storms and also um, greater extremes of heat and cold. I, I, I don't I do not think that that is going to lead to a greater tolerance of unpredictability and uncertainty. Um, this is admittedly a short, but it is a it was a very um, impressive natural experiment, which is what happened during the pandemic. I do not think people became more tolerant of uncertainty in their lives as a result of having it imposed upon them for almost three years. Well, I, I have just um, one one last question for, for you, which is about, which refers to something that you said in the beginning and that you write in the beginning of the book is that When I was growing up, we expected the West to be the center of the world. We didn't even have to say it, but looking at America, America was the center of the world. What happened there would be followed, not aped, by people uh, other other places in the world. And we considered our own canon of knowledge and literature to be the the the, the canon of, of the world. And more and more, we realized, and I think in a health, healthy fashion, that we are not the center of the world. And actually, what we believe was knowledge for everyone was just our kind of knowledge. And and you, you ran the beginning of your book that this is the limitation of your work as well, that this is the canon that 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 you are familiar with. And I'm not blaming you or blaming myself or anyone. I'm just asking an epistemological question. To what extent do you think that we will have to transcend our canon for the next decades? To what extent do you think that we'll have to accustom ourselves to a world where we're no longer at, at the center? And and really revise our understanding of civilizations and history. Yes, it, my, my education very much, um, also an education of, of the 1960s and the 1970s, reflects that kind of unthinking um, Eurocentrism, if you will. And I, I think it's, I think we're really lucky to be living in a time in which um, that canon is being enlarged. If I were younger and, and perhaps even at my advanced age, I can think of nothing more exciting than learning another language um, in order to have access 
to another canon of thought. Every new language is a new world. Who would not want to have their horizons expanded in this fashion? I, I think it's an exhilarating time, frankly, for just that reason. But it seems to me, and I think when I think of it like this, it seems really fantastic. This is what we're about to do. But then I think that, you know, all the philosophy that I grew up with, sociology, all all the places where I can excel personally, they're, 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 so to speak, in the wrong field. So it also requires something for us personally to leave our home con advantage, so to speak. Yes. It, it's true, I think, once again, of Herodotus setting out on his personal inquiry, he calls it his Historia um, to Egypt. Um, but um, it, it seems to me that the gains are so much greater than the losses, so much greater, Im immeasurably greater than the losses. Well, thank you. I think that's a very inspiring way to end. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real privilege reading your book and a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Lorraine Dustin. Det var min samtale med Lorraine Dastan. Den bog, vi talte om, hedder Rules, A Short History of What We Live By. Og jeg skulle hilse at sige, at det er en kolossal bog, men den er faktisk relativt hurtigt læst. Den er på omkring 400 sider. I forhold til, hvad man får ud, så er det ikke en stor indsats at gå ind i den bog. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med forskeren Eva Illus, der har et helt fantastisk forskningsprojekt. Hun har undersøgt, gennem 30 år forholdet mellem kapitalister og vores følelser. Hun er mig bekendt, og jeg har interesseret mig længe for det her. Den eneste, der rigtigt har afdækket, hvordan den kapitalistiske populærkultur forandrer vores følelsesliv, og hvordan de forandringer i vores følelsesliv gør os receptive over for nogle ganske bestemte forbrugsmønstre. Hun er hverken moraliserende, eller idealiserende, eller ideologiserende. Hun viser os virkeligheden, som vi kan blive helt forbløffet over at se, som den er. Det er altså i næste uge, hvor jeg taler med Eva Illus. Den her samtale var ligesom de forrige samtaler, produceret og redigeret af vores hjælper og kammerat, Mads Adam Vener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen næste uge.